Now, as we transition now in our worship into the time of our service where we are to receive the instruction of the Lord, uh, every week, you know, we transition out of a prayer. I don't know if you noticed that, but it's all very carefully constructed. And really, it's a prayer of illumination. So the idea is that what we're about to do and what we've been engaged in doing is a spiritual enterprise. It's something that we can't do in our own strength, in our own flesh. Our minds are dark and weak and selfish and really not necessarily wanting to receive the instruction of the Word unless it lines up alongside whatever instruction we'd really like to receive. And so what we need is for the Spirit of God to come and to awaken our hearts and to humble us and to give us spiritual eyes and ears. So I hope that's what He will do today, because if He gives you spiritual eyes to see your Savior today, my goodness, you'll sing at the end of the service. He gives you ears to hear, then perhaps you will humble yourself, and you'll not just find forgiveness, but restoration and joy. So, as we continue this morning with our study of the Gospel of Luke, we return once again to the night upon which Jesus is betrayed. We're in the darkness, and He's betrayed, as it turns out, and we'll see it not just by Judas Iscariot. That was last week. So, last week, we saw how Judas Iscariot went to the religious leaders of Israel and said, hey, guys, I hear you all have a problem, and the problem is you're looking for a time and a place where you can arrest Jesus apart from the presence of the crowd. I mean, largely unnoticed. And they said, yes. And he said, well, you know, for the right fee, and they bargained it out, I can deliver him to you. And then he led them, the religious leaders of Israel, and two to six hundred armed soldiers through the darkness of this night that we return to today. And he brought them to the private garden of Gethsemane, the private garden of Gethsemane, where Judas knew that they camped out every single night, perfect location, and will watch them seize him. And here's what Matthew tells us that Luke doesn't. He says that when they seize him, when they arrest him, when they lay hands on him and take him, every one of the disciples runs for their lives, including Peter, whom Jesus had told would turn from him. Do you remember that? We saw it a few weeks ago, but it happened on this same night. So like a few hours before the story that we're going to look at today, Jesus is sitting with his disciples at the Last Supper. It's all the disciples, including Peter and Christ. And Jesus says something to Peter that would be absolutely unforgettable to everyone there. Like all the conversation stopped when he said this because it's pretty intense. He looked at Peter, Luke 22, verse 31, and he said, Simon, Simon, which is just another name for Peter. Now notice this, behold, Satan has demanded to have you. Wow. And here's why. That he might sift you like wheat. That he might take the husk, if you will, that contains the little kernel of whatever your faith is and so beat you and so break you and so throw you up into the wind of adversity, of temptation, of difficulty, of pain, of confusion, of whatever, that that husk completely breaks away, and you, Peter, and everyone else is going to get to see what your real faith is, which, as an aside, happens in times of adversity, doesn't it? That's when you see what you really believe in. That's when you discover what you really trust in. It's a time of sifting. And here's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, hey, um, Peter, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might do that to you, and I'm going to let it happen. And here's why I'm going to let it happen. Because there are things in you that need to be broken. 
There are things in you that need to be stripped away, things that you are not even aware of that exist in you, pride, self-reliance, an independent spirit. You're Peter, and you think you can do it all in your own strength. Well, guess what? You can't. And before you'll ever be a great leader in my church, you need to learn how to depend entirely, utterly upon me. There is a humbling that must come before you are exalted. It's the kingdom ethic. So the Lord looks at Peter, intense moment. All the disciples are dialed in at this point, and he says, Simon, Simon, Peter, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, and I'm going to let it happen, but don't despair, and here's why. And it comes back to prayer, doesn't it? We saw it last week. What is the foil, if you will, to temptation and the tempter? What does Jesus command his disciples to do in the garden? To pray. What does Jesus himself do in the garden? Pray. It's like if the Lord needed to pray. Good grief. How much more do I? And here's Jesus. Satan has demanded you. He's, he wants to have you. He's, he's going to sift you, but it's going to be okay in the end. Why? Because I, Jesus, have prayed for you. What does the New Testament teach us about Jesus and me and you if you're a believer in Him? He ever lives to make intercession for you. He is your advocate. And the Father does not deny the prayers of the Son. So the Lord states with great confidence, look, don't despair. And here's why. Because I have prayed for you that your tiny little faith or kernel of faith here may not fail you in the end, which is the idea. But then Jesus makes it incredibly clear. And Peter gets this message. He understands what he's saying, that it will fail him, at least in the short run. Because Jesus then says, and when you have turned again. Now, what does that presuppose? That first he'll turn away from Christ. He has to turn away to turn back. When you have turned again, he says, okay, then strengthen your brothers. All right, so what do we have thus far? We've got Jesus, night that he's betrayed, a few hours before the story that we're going to look at today, sitting at this dinner, Last Supper, with his disciples, having an intense moment with Peter where he's saying, hey, Peter, here's the deal. Satan has demanded to have you, not to kind of get to know you, send you a letter. No, 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 to take you over, to sift you like wheat, and I'm going to let it happen. Because there are things that need to be broken in you, that need to be taken away, that I'm going to use this experience to do. He's going to be working for me in your life, ironically. Must be frustrating for the devil. Every time he thinks he succeeds, he he realizes he's just done the Lord's work somehow. So I'm going to let this happen. And here's why you don't need to despair, because I've prayed for you. Because when he sifts you, you will fail. You're going to fall, Peter. You're going to turn away from me. But have no fear, I've prayed for you. So when you return in repentance and faith, here's my mission for you. It is strengthen your brothers. It is not just a mission of, oh, I've forgiven you, but now I need to send you out to pastor because, man, you really blew it big. I mean, good grief. How in the world could you ever imagine that I could use you after that? No, no, no. No, it's I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to restore you and you're going to be a better man for my use. And Peter understands this. He gets the message. You see it in his response. He just completely disagrees with it. He hears the infallibly perfect prophetic word of Christ telling him what's coming next in his life, and he's thinking to himself apparently, Lord, you're always right. You've proven it again and again, but this time you're wrong. Does that ever happen? Listen to what he says. 
Peter hears this and then he says to Jesus, listen to the bravado, listen to the self-confidence, listen to the self-reliance, listen to the independent spirit, listen to the no way could that ever happen to me. Maybe that could happen to that guy over there on the other side of the table. We all have our doubts about that dude down at the end. And there are other people that you and I have met, Jesus, who might do something like this. But I'm Peter. I mean, he has no category for failure, not on this order. So he says, Lord, I am ready. Don't forget this word or this language. I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death, at which point Jesus says, oh, really? All right, well, let me be a little bit more specific. I'm going to tell you exactly how you're going to fail me, and I'm going to tell you exactly when you're going to fail me. Jesus says this. He says, I tell you, Peter, that the rooster will not crow this day. That is to say, this day will not end. The dawn will not break. That's when roosters crow. Until you first deny three times that you even know me, which is exactly what happens in the story that we're going to look at today. And, you know, honestly, that's a little bit depressing, isn't it? If we just looked at that story. So we're not just going to look at that story. We're going to look at that story, and I hope that the Spirit of God gives us eyes and ears, not just to see Jesus in that story, but ourselves in that story. Because we are all of us, Peter. All of us. And then we're going to look at his forgiveness and restoration and realize that, hey, you know, that's, that's available to us too. So we'll start with his fall, and then we'll go to John 21 and look at his restoration. And in the process, what we're going to learn is that Jesus overcomes even our biggest failures. And what I want you to begin doing, even now, is recalling your biggest failures. And that's going to take the Spirit's work in your heart, too, because you don't even want to go there, do you? That is too painful. And here's what we do as human beings. We resist trauma. We walk away from pain. We don't want to have to remember things that are real and damaging. They afflict us. And what I'm asking is that the Spirit would give you the courage to step into those moments again and own them so that they might not in the end own you. Jesus overcomes even our biggest failures, and as we'll see, does it in a way that not only brings us forgiveness but restoration. It doesn't just make us clean before God. That would be miraculous enough, would it not? It also makes us useful to God, and in some cases, ironically, more useful to God. He turns everything inside out, and notice this too as we go through these stories. He does it in a way that takes the emblems of our failure and weakness and transforms them into the emblems of His great and overcoming grace and strength. So, we pick up our study today, Luke 22, beginning in verse 54, where we see the story of Peter's failure. Luke says, then they, meaning the soldiers that the religious leaders of Israel brought with them following Judas Iscariot to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus on this night upon which he is betrayed, seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter, who in that moment, together with all the other disciples, ran for his life. So that's a far cry from, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death, isn't it? Yeah, that statement perishes quick. But Peter circles back, and he follows the crowd at a distance, as in a, I don't want to go to prison and death with you distance. A safe distance is the idea. And when after these enemies of Jesus arrived at the home of the high priest, and after they had then kindled a fire, because it's a cold night, out in the middle of this private outdoor courtyard that was part of this large home, and John tells us it was a charcoal fire, 
which matters. And then after all these arresting people sat down together around that charcoal fire to warm themselves, Peter too sat down among them. And we don't know exactly what he was thinking, but we're pretty sure that he was not thinking, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and death because of what happens next. For Luke says that then a servant girl, probably the least intimidating person on the property, seeing Peter as he sat there in the light of this charcoal fire with all the enemies of Jesus and looking closely at him, warming himself with everyone else and just trying to blend in with the crowd, said to this crowd sitting around Peter, you know, having examined him carefully first, this man also was with Jesus. She's examined him. She's confident. She speaks up. But Peter denied it, saying, woman, I do not even know him. So if you're counting, that's denial number one. And then Luke tells us, a little while later. Now, what's the significance of that? Because there are two time references in this story. What does this little while give Peter the opportunity to do? It gives him the opportunity to go, hey, you know what? I just blew it. And then to own it and to step up and go, you know what, guys? Sorry about this. I lied about the whole not knowing Jesus thing, and she's right. (laughs) I'm actually his chief follower. I mean, if you want to just sort of break it down hierarchically. And, oh, and parenthetically, I am willing to go both to prison and to death with Jesus since it looks like that's the way this whole thing is heading. It gives him a chance to correct the error of his ways. He has time to think about this. But then we read that someone else saw Peter sitting there and said, you also are one of them, meaning one of the disciples of Jesus. But Peter said, man, I am not, which is denial number two. And then what? After an interval of about an hour where he had to stew on all that, where he had opportunity number two to, well, get it right. He doesn't get it right. Still another person insisted, saying, certainly this man was also with Jesus, for he too is a Galilean. He heard his accent. And Peter said, man, I do not know what you were talking about. And he said it emphatically, far more emphatically than I just did, because Matthew tells us that he then began taking oaths swearing to the Lord and calling down curses upon himself if in fact he is lying to these people that he doesn't know Christ. And then we read that immediately, while Peter was still speaking and calling down oaths and curses upon himself, the rooster crowed. And the Lord, who was sitting there listening to all or to at least some of this. You see how Luke hides him until this moment? The Lord turned and looked at Peter with his already beaten face. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Why? Because like so many of us who have foolishly thought that in our own strength, we would never deny the Lord. We look around at other people's sins and we think to ourselves, I mean, look, I might do that, but I would never do that. We arrogantly forget that we are all of us made of the same clay and subject to the same weaknesses and under the same sets of circumstances and temptations would pretty well do the same dadgum things. Peter fell, just like we have all fallen. He turned away from the Lord, even as we have all turned away from the Lord. But the Lord has prayed for him. Don't forget that. And he's prayed for you. And so since it would be depressing to end the story here, let's go to John chapter 21, where we will now learn 
that Jesus overcomes even our greatest failures, not just Peter's, ours too. And you have that failure in mind, don't you? You know what it is? As soon as I said that, you knew. And he does it in a way that doesn't just bring forgiveness, but restoration. It doesn't just present us as clean to God. That would be miraculous enough, but no, it presents us as useful to God. In fact, even more useful for the way that he redeems our sin, for the way that he uses all of the tragic things that in darkness we stumble into. Oh, and he does it in a way that also turns the emblems of our failure and weakness into the emblems of His great strength and grace. And so then in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, John says that after this, meaning after Jesus has suffered and died at the hands of these men that we just left Him to, after He has been crucified, embalmed, and buried, after He has risen again from the dead, now having succeeded by His life, by His sufferings, by His death, burial, and resurrection, in overcoming by His blood at the price that He paid all of Peter's denials and all of ours, together with everything else that we need to be forgiven for. And as well, after he had appeared to his disciples a couple times already in the narrative, Jesus, we read, revealed himself yet again to his disciples, but this time by the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee. Tiberias is a city that's right on the Sea of Galilee. So sometimes it's called by that name. So Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias, and he revealed himself, now notice what John says here, to them in this very particular is the idea way. What is he saying? He's saying, watch the details. They matter the way that Jesus reveals himself is really significant. It's telling. So then here are all the people involved. Simon Peter, well, there he is, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, who are James and John, and two others of his disciples, so seven in total, were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they all said, well, all right, then we're going to go with you. And that's kind of perfectly understandable in one sense. And, and, and that's the sense that all of these guys were professional fishermen when Jesus originally met them. But it is not understandable at all in light of what Jesus did. He called them quite literally out of their boats and away from their nets. And he said, guys, follow me and I will make you fishers of what? Of men. So here are the fishers of men. And they've gone back to fishing for fish. Why? Because I think even if they thought, well, the Lord, you know, He could probably forgive us for running from Him, and in Peter's case, far more than that. But can He use us after that? Maybe He just wants to raise up a whole new band of people, you know, just people who haven't messed up so big. Well, we'll see. We'll see. So Peter says, I'm going fishing. And they said, well, all right, then we'll go with you. And then they went out and they got into the boat. But that night and nighttime is the time to fish. Okay, they caught nothing, which means that Peter now is not just a failure as a fisher of men, but also as a fisher of fish. And then John says this, and we're supposed to watch the details. He says, as, just as the day was breaking. Now, why is that significant? Because it was just as the day was breaking that Peter denied Jesus for the third time. How do we know that? That's when the roosters crow. So at the very same time of day that Peter failed as a fisher of men, he's now failing as a fisher of fish. That's evident. They fished all night, got nothing. Now they're going to come in. And Peter and these guys are in a boat, as we'll see here in a minute, about 100 yards offshore. In a world with no electricity or cars or planes or trucks, a world with no noise, 
They can hear, as we'll see in a minute, a voice. It's the voice of Christ calling to them from the shoreline. All right, so the day is breaking then. What are they hearing again and again and again from all the little farms and villages and towns that littered the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee? Roosters, guys. And I bet you it was real quiet in that boat. I think that created a very awkward moment for Peter because, I mean, the reality is all of those guys were there at the Last Supper. All of those guys heard Jesus say, hey man, Simon's going to sift you. Oh, you don't buy that. Okay, three times before the rooster crows. And all of those guys at this point in the narrative know that that's exactly the way it played out. And so the day is breaking. It's the time of day that he betrayed the Lord. The roosters are crowing all along the shoreline. And these guys are all looking at each other and nobody's saying anything. It is absolutely awkward. And why? Because the rooster's crow becomes the emblem of Peter's failure. It's amazing. He's forever associated with the rooster crowing. You know, some of you have gone to Israel with us, and um, if you go with us in the future, one of the things that we do is we go to Jerusalem, and and one of the places in Jerusalem that we go to is called St. Peter and Gallicantu. It's a church that was originally built a million years ago and then torn down and rebuilt and torn down and rebuilt and torn down and then rebuilt, I think, in 1931. But it was always built and rebuilt in the same spot, and the spot is the historic spot of the house of the high priest where Peter denied the Lord. And pretty appropriately, between the house and this ancient Roman staircase that comes up out of the Kidron Valley, right past the house, that in all likelihood the Lord himself walked up on this night. There's a courtyard outside, and in the courtyard there's a statue, and I wanted to show you a picture of it. That's a picture taken of the statue at night, which is really cool. It's like brass or something. And you can see the fire there in the corner. And you can see Peter, and he's sitting there with his hands out like, I don't know the man, you know. And you can see the servant girl going, I know that it's you. And you can see the Roman soldier sort of menacingly standing over his right shoulder, if you will. But what stands above it all? There's a column, and above the whole thing, there's the rooster. It's the emblem of his failure. Well, keep that in mind. John says again in verse 4 that just as the day was breaking and the roosters were crowing, Jesus stood on the shore. He's recreating his crime is the idea. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus, so they were close enough to see that there was a man standing there, but they couldn't tell that it was him. And so Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? Which is a statement dripping in irony, is it not? He called them to fish, but not for men. And in this case, they hadn't caught fish or men. I'm sorry, but for men, not for fish. And in this case, they hadn't caught either. And so he answered, or they answered and said, no. And he said to them, well, then cast your nets on the right side of the boat, which is ridiculous, and you'll find some. Okay, look, the sun's coming up. It's the worst time of day now to fish. We've already kind of drifted over the very part of the lake that you want us to now cast our nets into. We haven't caught one fish. We're professional fishermen. Stranger guy on the shore is saying, eh, throw it on the right side of the boat. Stunningly, they they do it. I think they're very broken men. So they cast their net on the right side of the boat, and now they were not able to haul it in because of all the great quantity of fish. And then John says, that disciple whom Jesus loved, who is John himself, 
Therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, watch what he does. He put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work. What it says is that he was naked. He's like Adam in the garden, you remember? He's in his nakedness until he sins and then he starts covering it over. Peter too covers himself before he goes to the Lord, which is different from Adam. The Lord comes looking for Adam and he runs and hides in the bushes. Peter puts on his clothes and dives over the side of the boat because he cannot get to the shoreline and thus to Jesus fast enough, which I think says something about the look that Luke alone tells us that he received upon his denial. It says that he put on his garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea and swam to shore, you know. And meanwhile, the other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. And then John says that when they got out onto the land, they saw a charcoal fire. They saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And so then Jesus appears to Peter at dawn the time of day when he had denied him for the third time. He appears amongst the sounding of the roosters, which is what he heard right after he denied him for the third time. And when Peter comes ashore all cold and wet, yeah, there's a charcoal fire, the very same kind of fire that he had warmed himself by for the first, second, and third denials of Christ. And then it gets even better because John tells us in verse 15 that when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, so time goes by. He just lets him sit and stew, you see. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Because on the night that I was betrayed, you kind of, you know, insinuated that maybe you do. Sort of like you looked around and went, I don't know, maybe one of these guys might betray you, Lord, but least likely right here. He answers it pretty humbly. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you period, end of sentence. He doesn't say, you know that I love you more than them. And Jesus says to him, feed my lambs. Now, what kind of a person feeds lambs? A shepherd. Who is that within the context of the church? A pastor, an elder, a leader. Then Jesus said to Peter a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And and Peter said to him, well, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep, shepherd my flock, lead my church. And then Jesus said to Peter the third time, one for each of his three denials. He's undoing them. He's walking him back through them. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because Jesus said to him the third time, do you love me? And I love what he says. He says, Lord, you know everything. And doesn't he though? If anybody knew that at this point, it's Peter, is it not? You know things about me that I didn't even know about myself, my pride, my arrogance, my self-reliance, my independence, the fact that I will fall exactly how, exactly when. Good grief, you know everything, Lord. You know everything, which is actually comforting. Because if he didn't know everything, you'd wonder, you know, if he knew this about me, would he love me? He knows everything. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because Jesus asked him this third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, then feed my sheep. Get to work. So he appears at the dawn, the time of day that Peter denied him the third time, amongst the crowing of the roosters, which is what he heard when he denied him for the third time. When Peter comes ashore, Jesus 
has a charcoal fire sitting there waiting for him. When he warmed himself as he denied the Lord first, second, and third time. And then Jesus brings him through this exercise that requires him to publicly affirm his love for him once for each of his public denials. Jesus has fully recreated his crime. And you're like, why? To be cruel to him? No, to free him, to release him. My goodness, what's the lesson? It is that Jesus overcomes our biggest failures, and he does it in a way that not only brings forgiveness, but restoration, cleanness, and usefulness, and that undoes the emblems of our failure. Because from this moment on, I mean, if you think about it, Every time the day broke, every time a rooster crowed, every time Peter got a whiff of a charcoal fire, and I love that one because I'm told at least that your sense of smell is the one that's most acutely tied to your memory. Every time any of these things happened, Peter was reminded, yes, of his failure, but far more so of his forgiveness. Okay, yeah, of his weakness. But my goodness, what he was reminded of is the great and overcoming grace and strength of the Lord. Strength by which to face temptation. Strength by which to take on the tempter. Strength by which to be made useful to God. Feed my sheep, Peter. And now that you've been humbled, you'll do it in my strength, according to my wisdom, and so forth. And so, you know, you've got to kind of take that into your heart and bear up under the courage of going back into your past and saying, yeah, okay, here's my big one. And maybe you're thinking, no, I've got like nine big ones. Okay, well, you know, throw them all out there. What is it? Because here's how it works. Let's say, for example, that pornography is your failure and adult bookstores are your rooster's crow, man. They're the things that remind you of all the times you have failed and all the shame and guilt and crud, frankly, that goes along with that. And they tempt you to fail again. Well, then let them if you've repented of that. And what is repenting? It's turning. What did Jesus say? When you return to me. Not when you keep running after that. It is a turning away. If you've repented of that sin, if you've sought to deal seriously with it, if you're walking in accountability with other people, if you're walking through a process of healing and finding your satisfaction in Christ, and that's the only place that it can be found. If you're being restored, man, then let it remind you of your forgiveness. Let it remind you of the great grace and strength of Christ, your Savior. Let it remind you that, man, you're not just forgiven. You can be useful of the Lord, and in fact, for that failure, maybe far more useful than you ever otherwise would have been. Look, who is it that leads, forget pornography, addiction recovery groups? It's addicts who have been delivered. If divorce is your failure and every wedding that you attend and every happily married couple that you see is your rooster's crow, like you want to kind of, you know, slap them on occasion. Understood? But you've repented of your part of that deal. You've walked through healing. You've grown in your knowledge and understanding of the Lord. He's forgiven you. He's restored or is restoring you. Listen, let those weddings and those happily married people who are just, you know, let them remind you not just of your failure. Let them remind you of your forgiveness. Let them remind you not just of your weakness, but of the great and overcoming strength and grace of the Lord. I'm going to go deeper. This is maybe the most painful one I could mention. If abortion is your failure, if it is, 
And every one of those bumper stickers, and I don't know if you've driven the turnpike lately, but it's like every billboard on the turnpike, I'm pretty sure, that tells you that conception or life begins at conception, which incidentally, science has uniformly affirmed, and every one of us has already, already known, haven't we? It just confirmed what common sense says. Men and women, male and female issue, Look, if it's your failure and you're willing to walk into that and own that and confess that and bring that to this Jesus, not only will He forgive you, but He'll walk you through a process of healing and restoration, you see, and you'll be the more valuable to Him and to His kingdom, not the less, for all of the lessons you've learned. Let it remind you those things of your great forgiveness of your great and overcoming Savior and His great and overcoming grace. So you get the idea. Jesus isn't just forgiving Peter. He's restoring Peter. He's saying through the detail with which He recreates His crime. It's brilliant. Hey, Peter, I know everything about your monumental failure, just like He does all of mine and all of yours. And now, Peter, I want you to know about my monumental grace. Oh, I know your weakness I let you go through that so that you might know it too. And now I want you to know about my strength. I want you to see that your strength is found in me. And I'm going to take the emblems of your failure and weakness. And I'm going to make them emblems of joy, of grace, of mercy, of love, of hope, of peace. All these kinds of things. Pretty amazing. So Jesus says to Peter the third time, Peter, or Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And then Jesus said, oh, and Peter, I'm going to look forward into your future yet again, one more time, and tell you one more time what's coming for you. He says, truly, truly, I say to you that when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, here's how you will die. You will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This, John tells us, Jesus said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God and by what kind of death is that? Crucifixion. He dies by crucifixion. So what is Jesus saying to him in this moment of restoration? He's saying, hey, buddy, let me tell you how your story is going to end, at least in this earth. It's going to end with you having yet another opportunity to either stand with me and identify with me or to deny me with your life on the line. And this time, Peter, I've prayed for you. This time, you'll pass the test. And you will write my gospel with your blood. Something to think about, by the way, if you're skeptical of the gospel. All these guys died terrifyingly difficult deaths. Peter crucified upside down. He refused to be crucified right side up. Said he was unworthy to die in the same posture as his Lord. Why in the world would these guys make all this stuff up and then pay the price of that by those kinds of excruciating deaths? They saw a risen Jesus. It's the only thing that makes sense of it. It really is. So, Peter, when you get to the end, buddy, 
that's going to be the deal. And you're going to pass the test. And I don't know this, but I will bet you that Peter woke up at the break of dawn. At the first thing he heard, roosters. That he came out, and I bet it was cool, to the smell, to the warmth of a charcoal fire. And he was reminded, I think, in that moment of his greatest test, and that's the greatest of tests, is it not? Not just of his weakness, but of the Lord's strength by which he would be faithful and give his life. So, what's your greatest failure? You probably haven't been struggling with that one. Now, the question is, have you brought it to Jesus? Because if you will go there, are you that courageous? You've got to own it or it will own you. That's it. If you'll go there and own it and then bring it to Christ, He will take it from you. He will take it from you. He will forgive you. He will restore you. And He will empower you to go forth and to live for Him. And in the process, He'll transform the emblems of your failure and weakness into signs on the side of the road and bumper stickers and stuff like that that give testimony again and again and again to His greatness, to His glory, to His grace, to His love. So there's the challenge for you, and I hope that the Lord will give you the faith to take it up. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for the picture of our Savior that we see in this story. Lord, He is glorious and He is beautiful. He is patient and He is kind. He is loving and in Him is the fullness of joy. He condescends to take our burden that we gained those burdens in running from Him. And by His Spirit, having paid the price for the the whole of them, He calls us back to Himself. So call us now, Lord, back to Yourself. Give us humility. Let us own our issues that they might not own us any longer. Let us give them to the only one who can take them from us and destroy and wash them away. Indeed, more than that, take them from us and redeem them by using them to make us even more powerful servants of of Himself. Do these things, we pray, for the glory of our Lord and for the building of His kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.